section thirteen of social life in england seventeen fifty to eighteen fifty by f j folks jackson this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami lecture five creevy papers the regency part one it is time we entered better society than we have been in for the last few lectures of course much depends on the meaning of the word better i do not think we need attach any moral significance to it let me at once admit that by better i mean more select or perhaps exclusive is the right term for most people in the time of which i am about to treat it was necessary to be born to good society in order to obtain an entrance to it yet there were exceptions whilst there were men like broom whose genius compelled recognition though they were made to feel that they neither were nor could be members of the inner circle there were others without even his social qualifications who took their place therein and made themselves felt and even feared by the highest in the land such a man was the author of the papers from which i shall borrow so much to-day nor can we forget that the rival in ton to the prince regent himself the first gentleman in europe was Brummel, the tradesman's son. The subject of my remarks today will be at first mainly political, not that I have any desire to raise controversial questions, but one is bound to do so when speaking of English life during the Great War with Napoleon, which bears so striking an analogy to the present. There is a marked tendency today to say that the conduct of our statesmen and of society in general contrasts unfavorably with that of men of a century ago and i think i shall be able to prove conclusively that under very different conditions the passions of men are much the same as formerly and that if the advantage is on either side it is with the present rather than with the past i feel i have set myself a very difficult task in attempting to define a whig in the later years of george the third the strength of the party was the new aristocracy created by henry the eighth with the spoils of the monasteries of which the cavendishes russells and other houses were the leaders they were naturally strongly protestant and their immense power dates from the revolution in sixteen eighty eight their rivals the tories were in opposition till the accession of george the third and as their sympathies were all on the side of the exiled roman catholic stuarts they had little or no influence when however george the third a prince born in england ascended the throne the tories who bore him no grudge for his treatment of the exiled royal family rallied to the young monarch who was resolved not to submit as his grandfather had done to the tyranny of the whig oligarchy henceforward the tories were on the side of the crown whilst their opponents resisted its encroachments the revolt of the american colonies provoked by mr grenville's stamp act made the whigs oppose the king who was determined to coerce his disaffected subjects when the french revolution broke out this party sympathized with the republicans and were opposed to the war which began in seventeen ninety two their following consisted of the dissenters and intellectuals the former drawing their strength from the commercial classes 
and the latter consisting of young men enamoured with the cult of reason and extremely susceptible to new ideas the bulk of the nation however the church the country gentry the farmers profiting by war prices and even the lower orders were tory the non-aristocratic members of the whig party were often great sufferers they were exposed to mob violence as in the case of dr priestley to social ostracism and to vindictive prosecutions by the government but the great houses maintained their position and were too strongly entrenched in it to be seriously disturbed thus we have the spectacle of liberal ideas being championed by a coterie of great families haughty withdrawn from common folk and so exclusive that it was almost impossible to gain admission to their circle hereditary exercise of power extending over fully a century made them skilled politicians and when they recruited talent from the middle classes the whigs made their allies feel their dependence upon the ruling caste neither the philosophy of edmund burke in one generation nor the versatility of henry broom in another prevented either from the sense of being in a state of dependence on their patrons one man however without the advantages of birth or wealth enjoyed the privilege of moving freely in this charmed circle in the person of mr creevey whose memoirs only appeared in nineteen o three his editor sir herbert maxwell describes his abilities as hardly of the second order but i must confess that considering the position he occupied in the party i cannot share his opinion married to a mrs ord and apparently living on his wife's moderate fortune sitting for thetford a close borough of the duke of norfolk's and after his wife's death subsisting on an income of two hundred pounds a thousand dollars a year he never stooped to flatter gave his advice without fear or favour and when the duke put him out of his seat in the house of commons wrote the head of the english peerage a letter which showed that he looked on his patron as an equal who had treated him very shabbily from the duke's reply to my dear creevy it is easy to see that his grace recognized that he had offended not a humble dependent but a man of great political and social influence i am now going to select a few passages dating from the rupture of the peace of amiens in eighteen o three and onwards showing how england was rent by factions even in the most perilous days of the war with napoleon remember that often the country was fighting alone against perhaps the greatest genius the world has ever seen and that her position at times appeared to be almost hopeless in eighteen o four when bonaparte's camp was established at boulogne ready for the invasion of england party feeling ran extraordinarily high pitt was becoming impatient with the incompetence of his friend addington and as a party manoeuvre he moved for an inquiry into the conduct of admiral lord st vincent and was supported by fox creevy writes that he is convinced that the accused is innocent but still he felt bound to vote with fox i am he says more passionately attached every day to party i am certain that without it nothing can be done 
a month later the king's madness was coming on and creevy hopes that this attack will make an end of him as a ruler i hope that the monarch is done and can no longer make ministers later on the prospect of disaffection in ireland fills creevy with hopes that pitt's position may become impossible he says the country engaged in a new war unnecessarily undertaken and ungraciously entered upon the catholics discontented and the opposition unbroken if such a combination of circumstances does not shake the treasury bench what can the next year eighteen o five trafalgar brings to mr creevy and his friends the hope that mr pitt may be exposed for lending government money to a firm which had recently gone bankrupt in eighteen o eight when sir arthur wellesley began his work in the peninsula the convention of cintra made him most unpopular and the nation was says sir herbert maxwell almost unanimous in demanding his degradation if not his death mr whitbread writes to mr creevy i grieve for the opportunity which has been lost of acquiring national glory but i am not sorry to see the wellesley pride a little lowered the next year witnessed the lamentable failure of the volcheren expedition and wellesley's victory of talavera captain graham moore brother to sir john moore writes to creevy the cannings are in a damned dilemma with this expedition and the victory of talavera they mean i understand to saddle poor lord chatham with the first but who can they saddle the victory with they cannot attack the wellesleys as they did my poor brother what a cursed set you politicians are the passage of the duro by wellesley led to mr whitbread addressing the general in most complimentary terms but the war occupied people's thoughts but little the main interest being centred in the exposure of the scandalous sale of commissions in the army by mrs clark a friend of the duke of york's two years later in eighteen eleven creevy takes encouragement from the number of sick in the army of portugal and hopes it may bring about peace and when the war in spain was nearing its victorious conclusion a friend writes to him abusing wellington these remarks are indeed the mild utterances of leaders of a party more interested in disparaging their political opponents than in the progress of the war when we turn to the extreme wing of the party we find napoleon a hero and his defeat a calamity but even with such mighty odds against him the towering and gigantic genius of napoleon would have defied them all if english money had not bribed some of his generals it was this and this only that completed his downfall to talk of the duke of wellington as the conqueror of napoleon is an insult to the understanding of any intelligent man and for lord castlereagh to have boasted of having subdued him as his lordship was wont to do was pitiful was wondrous pitiful so wrote lady anne hamilton in the same strain also at an earlier period spoke mr fox of the virtues of his country's greatest and most determined enemy it is thus that history repeats itself in the wars my country has waged in her long history i now pass to a character very different from creevy's to the man who ruled the fashionable world with an authority even more undisputed than that of the prince of wales beau brummel 
the prince of the dandies the beau had no advantages of birth and only a moderate fortune it is often the custom to regard him as a mere coxcomb the outcome of a frivolous society fitted only to point a moral and adorn a tale i ventured to take a more charitable view of him and to give my opinion that he owed his ascendancy to something more than extravagance of dress and unbounded impudence to take but a single example everybody knows the story of brummel walking with lord alvenley in the park being cut by the prince regent and inquiring in an audible voice who is your fat friend there is very little point in the remark except its offensiveness but the biographer of brummel captain jesse got the true version from a friend who witnessed the incident it was not in the park but at a ball given by brummel lord alvenley and two others the prince was not invited because of his quarrel with brummel but as everybody was going he signified his pleasure to be present when he arrived he greeted lord alvenley and his other two hosts cutting brummel pointedly thereby insulting one of his entertainers the prince had by a gross breach of good taste placed himself in an impossible position if he did not know his host his host had a right to regard him as an uninvited intruder therefore the question was a snub unanswerable even by the regent the life of brummel is the record of much folly and frivolity ending with the long exile in calais which terminated in imbecility and death in an almshouse nevertheless this famous dandy fop though he was is one of those butterflies whose useless lives at least add to the beauty of the scene nor is it for the recorder of his time to point the finger of scorn at him absurd as his ideal was it was not wholly contemptible his vanity was not malicious he was at least no sycophant he held his own among aristocrats who were as vulgar as they were arrogant he shamed his associates into decent manners at a period when social polish was hardly skin deep he insisted on personal cleanliness in days when it was disregarded by the highest in the land he had the art of making friends who stood by him in his hours of poverty and distress the duke of york with all his faults the best-liked son of george the third the duchess one of the most amiable ladies of the day the duke of beaufort and many others remained staunch to him as long as he lived he was a sharer in the follies of his day but so far as i know he was not so heartless in his vices as many a greater man nor did he pander to the vices of others we can laugh at his absurdities without having that feeling of disgust with which we regard many of the faults of his august rival the prince regent how delightful for example is his criticism of the duke of bedford's coat on one occasion his grace asked the beau his opinion of his new clothes turn round said brummel now stand still then taking the garment by the lapel he exclaimed o oh, bedford do you call this a coat end of section thirteen